This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's hard to get a clear picture of the sexual harassment investigations at our state capitol. Not all the information's public, partly to protect victims. There are, of course, politics involved. And we learned this week that some workers have been told not to talk to the press. What we do know is that one lawmaker has been expelled, Steve Lebsock, and more have been investigated. So how can we get a sense of what it's like to suss out the truth in such a politically charged environment? Well, let's look to another state where an investigation has wrapped up. So Craig Morgan is with us. Hi, Craig. Good morning. You are an attorney in Phoenix, and uh, you recently worked on a sexual harassment investigation at Arizona's Capitol. Uh, it resulted in, in the expulsion of a state representative, Don Shooter. This hadn't happened in about 70 years in Arizona. Briefly, what did the investigation find there? Well, the investigation found that there was uh, credible evidence that allegations of harassment were founded. Uh, We also found, however, that in some instances, allegations were unfounded. So a mix of those. And what were those allegations? Be a bit more precise for us. Well, the allegations ranged from inappropriate comments to uh, inappropriate uh, statements uh, in the workplace or to lobbyists to uh, inappropriately touching a lobbyist uh, while sitting at a bar. Uh, The allegations kind of ran the gambit. Is the investigation into a politician like a state representative different from your run-of-the-mill corporate investigation? You bet. Absolutely. Uh, It's inherently different because you're dealing with politics and a political climate. And in that climate, uh, less privacy. And when there's less privacy, there's less willingness for men and women to be brave enough to come and talk with you so you can search for the truth and find it. When you say less privacy, is that in part because the press is so interested, because voters are so interested? Say more about that. Well, I think it's in part because the press is interested, uh, but it's also because constituents are keeping their eyes on the men and women they put in office and obviously want to know what it is they're doing, uh, be it good or or bad. And then, of course, you're dealing with public records, open records issues and things of that nature. But anytime you get politics involved, it just amps up the the hesitancy, I think, for people to participate in an investigation of this nature. It was interesting that at the beginning you said some of the allegations against this lawmaker who was ousted in Arizona were uh, founded, had uh, ample evidence, and and some did not. What's the uh, balance point between those? Help us understand when there's enough evidence to say this is likely to have happened and when there's not. It really, it depends on it's situational, right? It depends on what the evidence is. You know, for example, uh, if someone were to tell you, you know, so and so did such and such, and this third party told me that, well, you know, I'm not going to sit here, and I don't think any of us would conclude that a rumor based on hearsay is something that's substantiated okay. uh, or credible evidence of misconduct. But if You've spoken to three or four people who have witnessed the conduct at hand. There are documents to kind of put people in the places they need to be for the conduct to have occurred or not occurred for that matter. 
uh, th- then you start to piece together enough information where you can reach the conclusion that there is credible evidence that something happened or, or didn't happen. But it really does depend on the willingness of, of men and women with corroborating information or information that that completely eviscerates any chance that the conduct occurred coming forward and speaking with you. How freely did, and openly and honestly. Yeah, how did you persuade people who were hesitant, given the public nature of these investigations? How did you persuade them? Well, I'd like to, to say it was my good looks and charm, okay. uh, but I don't think it was quite that. <laughs> uh, you know, honestly, I think if you just you sit and you look at someone eye to eye and you explain to them the gravity of the situation, uh, that there are allegations of misconduct, they're serious allegations, and Only you can help me find the truth. And the truth is important because the truth is what's going to either exonerate this man or woman uh, from the uh, allegations made against them again, which are serious, or they're going to help us make change. They're going to help us get to the truth so those in charge can determine what the next step should be so we have a healthy working environment for those uh, in, in, in my case, at the House of Representatives. And a lot of people, when they hear that, they... They they tend to be willing to talk with you. Hmm. Is that the biggest difference between a legislative investigation and a corporate one, just the people's willingness to participate? What what else differs? Well, again, politics, you are dealing with, with, with a political climate. You're dealing with partisan and uh, uh, other related uh, interests. And you always kind of have to navigate that. Am I talking to someone who has a, a partisan axe to grind? Or is this someone who's giving me information that is that is being given to me freely for no ulterior motive other than to help me, you know, search for the truth? I think I think that's that's probably the the biggest hurdle you have to overcome in these sorts of investigations. I'll say that the makeup of Arizona's legislature is different from Colorado's. There, Republicans control both chambers. Here, the legislature is divided. Did you find people who you thought had an axe to grind and who thus complicated the picture you were trying to put together around sexual harassment uh, allegations? Uh, Generally, no. Uh, We were able to get a pretty good picture of of the facts early on and and then take that picture and develop it through investigation good old-fashioned investigation and and interviewing techniques uh kind of the sort of uh nuts and bolts stuff the lawyers at sherman and howard are known for and and no one was really able to you know uh, pull anything, if you will. So I didn't really find that to be a major hurdle at all. Sherman and Howard is the firm you work for, which is actually headquartered in Denver. Uh, Do you have some sense uh, that that is the same in Colorado, that politics aren't getting in the way too much or or what? I, you know, I have a sense that that it's definitely a heated political climate. Mm -hmm. And it would seem to me that the best thing to do in any situation where you're investigating the acts of, of a an elected official is to hire someone or bring someone in who is nonpartisan, who doesn't care either way which party wins at the end of the day or whose agenda is pushed where and have them come in and do an honest, thorough analysis of what occurred, investigate the allegations and do what we all want, uh, search for the truth. Indeed, there has been a third party involved in the investigation, but I want to say that one lawmaker, at least one lawmaker, is saying that an independent party should be involved at a 
an even earlier stage when it comes to sexual harassment complaints. This comes from Representative Faith Winter, uh, the lawmaker here in Colorado who filed the initial complaint against the ousted Steve Lebsack. I think one of the biggest things we could do is have the point of contact for any harassment in the Capitol be a neutral, nonpartisan person instead of leadership. So not just the investigation being by a third party, but that the initial complaint should be delivered to someone other than leadership. What do you make of that? I think it's a good idea. Uh, It's never a bad idea to have a fresh set of eyes look at something like that, because I think we would all agree that at the end of the day, we want to know whether what happened really happened. And then if it did, we want to take the steps necessary to make sure that it doesn't happen to anyone ever again. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're getting a sense for what it's like to investigate claims of sexual harassment in an unusual workplace that is a state capital. Of course, Colorado is grappling with this at its own state house. Uh, We are looking for some perspective today from Arizona, where uh, some similar uh, situations have played out in which a lawmaker there was ousted. Uh, after allegations of sexual harassment were found to be uh, valid. And uh, I want to note that you were still paid by the legislature, right? Um, So that's your employer. And if they have face to save, um, aren't you perhaps in in their pocket? How does that dynamic work, Craig Morgan? Well, as an attorney, I do represent my client and my client's best interests. And, you know, if I'm retained by a client to investigate and find out the truth, that's what I'm going to do. And it requires a client, in, like in the case of, of Arizona's House of Representatives, willing to put partisan politics aside and say, look, Craig, you and Sherman and Howard, you guys go out there here. You can have whatever you need. To investigate this, we just want to know what happened. We want to know the truth. Don't compromise that. Don't don't sugarcoat it. Find out what happened and tell us. And and that's what Arizona did. They 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 said, look, we don't care about partisan politics. We don't care about which house controls. These are allegations of serious misconduct. And we want you to go out and find out what happened, and we will give you whatever resources we can to make that happen. And, and yet, so out, if and Colorado, outside, go ahead. Yeah, an outside firm, though, can still come under criticism. I mean, in Colorado's state Senate, a report found allegations of sexual harassment against a lawmaker are more likely than not to have happened. But the Senate president called the report flawed. I mean, I, I wonder if you anticipated at least that kind of pushback in Arizona, what you do to make your findings sort of beyond reproach, you know. You do the best you can. You, 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 you try not to leave any stone unturned. You try to do the most diligent, thorough job that you can do. I mean, people will complain. Uh, it, it's the nature of any investigation to have folks question it. Um, the way you avoid that, however, yeah. is you enable your investigative team, as they did in Arizona, to have whatever access they need to whomever or whatever they need to search for the truth. And then what that team needs to do is put together a very thorough, very well-written and easy to understand, but thorough report of the findings. That way you can at least explain not only to the reader, but to the constituents that put these men and women in office 
what happened, why, and what needs to happen as a result. And in Arizona, as in Colorado, there's been a debate over whether it should be ultimately the voters who oust a lawmaker or uh, it should be up to the chamber in which that lawmaker sits. Uh, Let's talk about the, the Me Too and Time's Up movements which have gained so much traction in many walks of life lately. What impact does that have uh, when you are looking into a a state legislature? And and I guess I ask that partly to to figure out if it's possible in this court of public opinion with so many eyes on an investigation for the accused to get a fair hearing. Well, you know, The Me Too, Time's Up movements both have caused a huge social paradigm shift in how we approach allegations of harassment and misconduct. It cannot be ignored. And it was it's no different in the context of investigating someone for sexual harassment or harassment on the political level. And what you need to do as a result of these movements is you have to be able to put aside the allegations, the 30,000 retweets, I call it the scarlet hashtag, kind of like Hawthorne's scarlet letter, where if it's reposted 30,000 times, people are just willing to believe that it happened. And let's just get to the conclusion and then put the person on a, on a stake and burn them. And what you need to do is you've got to put all that aside and not compromise good old-fashioned investigation techniques. You need, to, you need to do the interviews. You need to talk to the people. You need to marshal the information to get to the truth. That way you can assure as best you can in this day and age of instant social media and instant gratification on the social media scale that, that folks are being treated fairly and that the truth is being discovered and delivered. Craig, thank you for being with us. That's Craig Morgan, attorney with Sherman and Howard. He recently conducted a harassment investigation into the Arizona legislature, and we talked about the finer points of investigations at state capitals. On Wednesday, thousands of Colorado students walked out of their schools to protest gun violence. Before the walkout, we met two Denver-area students, Paul Gordon and Enzo Perry. They had sharply different views on the subject. After the event, we checked back in with them. First, Paul Gordon, who organized the march at Arapahoe High School in Littleton. As we walked out, at first it wasn't very many kids. About two minutes later, I, I, I looked back up and I just saw a wave of people walking out of the building. And, and every single time we thought, it was like, okay, that's it. I mean, just another group came, you know, from another hallway or another part of the school. But he says he actually expected the crowd to be even larger still. I could never be disappointed in what happened today because it was one of the most inspiring shows of student activism I've ever seen. Meanwhile, Wednesday morning at Golden High School, sophomore Enzo Perry, who supports gun rights, stayed seated. The representative from the walkout actually came into the classroom said, we are now walking out. Everyone then got up, and then I proceeded to do my homework. Perry says he was the only one in his classroom to opt out. He did see a few other students in the building who also decided to stay put. Perry says he was tempted. But I also wanted to stick to my guns and literally, but also metaphorically, and just believe in what I believe. And he says he learned something from the day, for better or for worse. I learned how just a slight movement that someone can start can just spread like a forest fire. Once it takes root, it's hard to get rid of that. Meanwhile, Paul Gordon says he hopes the students sent a message to the public. 
I'm hoping that they see that we've been brought up in a world that kind of got pretty messed up over the last 20 years and that we're not going to sit there and pout about it. We're going to stand up and speak out and start to fix it. Denver area high school students Paul Gordon and Enzo Perry circling back with us with their views of Wednesday's gun violence walkouts. When we come back, Colorado Springs' role in protecting satellites from an attack. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. President Trump said last week that the United States may need a new branch of the military for space. Space is already a military theater of sorts. Satellites are so critical that the military has a new unit to protect them from enemy attack. The National Space Defense Center in Colorado Springs began round-the-clock operations earlier this year. Marco Caceres is director of space studies at the Teal Group, which tracks aerospace and defense. And Marco, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. The National Space Defense Center is housed at Schriever Air Force Base. Uh, as we said, a major focus is defending satellites. What do satellites do that make them so important uh, specifically to the military? Well, satellites are the key to our warfighting ability throughout the world. Um, they provide uh, communications, obviously, to our, our soldiers in the field, allow them to communicate with their commanders uh, regionally and uh, back in this, back in the United States. Um, satellites uh, take imagery. They take uh, pictures of, uh, uh, of the ground, uh, of, uh, of battlefields, of, um, of our enemy. They, they perform spy functions, a whole variety of things. How would an enemy attack satellites? Well, an enemy could use a missile, uh, such as, uh, say, one that the Chinese used back in 2007 to uh, to destroy one of their own satellites. I, they were testing their capabilities. Um, they could use lasers, uh, ground lasers, uh, point them up in, into space and uh, disrupt or destroy a satellite. Uh, they could um, they could uh, use electronic warfare. They could disrupt the communications of a ground facility that uh, controls the satellites uh, in orbit. Um, uh, it's leave it to your imagination. Whatever whatever weapons we can use to destroy things or to uh, to disrupt things here on Earth, we could do that uh, in space, either now or eventually. How do lasers um, either disrupt or disable permanently a satellite? Well, you could destroy uh, a satellite, obviously, by pointing a laser at it, or you can destroy, you can disrupt uh, its um, uh, its electronics uh, that would disable it. So the, you said the Chinese have done the the missile approach. Uh, is that a capability the United States has, and that other nations possess at this point? Where where does it stand? Yes, the United States uh, has has done a fair amount of testing uh, using uh, missiles uh, or uh, quote unquote kinetic energy. Uh, vehicles, uh, basically uh, designed to uh, destroy on impact. Um, we've also um, been uh, experimenting with uh, ground-based lasers, uh, probably since uh, the 1990s. Um, we've um, we've looked at uh, the possibility of uh, uh, sending satellites uh, into orbit with uh, uh, with drones that could then uh, maneuver and get close to satellites and. Uh, 
and either um, you know uh, ex- uh, destroy them with an explosive. Um, again, it's uh, you can use your imagination. And anything that you can do to destroy things on Earth, you could do it uh, in space. Who do you think are the enemies in this theater? <clears throat> enemies. Well, I guess if you're talking enemies, you, you always have to look at uh, Russia. You have to look at China. Those are the countries that we increasingly uh, view as our adversaries here on Earth. Um, they are um, two countries that have very robust uh, space programs, uh, both on the launch vehicle side and on the satellite side. Um, I mean, uh, the Russians, the, the Chinese, as well as ourselves, have been uh, successful in uh, establishing a, uh, a presence in orbit, uh, a space station. So, as a matter of fact, I believe uh, the, the, the Chinese space station or module is is set to uh, crash into Earth sometime in the next few weeks. So, I'm not mistaken. Oh. All right. To this center, the uh, National Space Defense Center. Uh, So it had been in a kind of pilot project phase for a while, part-time, small staff, but now it's ramped up 24 hours a day, full-time staff. What's driving that? Uh, Why now? Right. Uh, Well, I think we've been looking at the potential threat. We, being the United States government, uh, has been looking at the potential threat from uh, other countries, specifically China and and Russia, for for many years, uh, perhaps even decades. Uh, I think what one of the things that might have um, uh, touched this off is that um, uh, about two months ago, uh, DOD, the Department of Defense, issued a um, a, a report warning that uh, it believed that uh, the the Chinese and the, and the Russians uh, would have the capability to uh, to destroy or disrupt our satellites at low Earth orbit uh, within the next two to three years. So, uh, if it, if there was any one thing that might have sparked this. Um, uh, th- this uh, this facility being uh, made operational as opposed to an experimental project, uh, I would assume it was it was that. And this National Space Defense Center in Colorado is on an Air Force base in Colorado Springs, but its director has said it's not an Air Force unit, and it's not really even a Department of Defense unit. Sort of an interagency operation uh, with tentacles in lots of of aspects of defense and intelligence. As we mentioned, President Trump said this week that the United States may need a space force. Colorado Springs Republican Congressman Doug Lamborn supports that. Uh, The Air Force Secretary and the head of U.S. Strategic Command, though, have expressed reservations. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yes, if you look at the defense authorization bill from last year, uh, the um, it contained uh, some some uh, wording uh, to establish a uh, a space corps, something akin to say the Marine Corps under uh, the U.S. Navy. Uh, interestingly, the um, uh, General Mattis, uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, was is not too keen on that. I don't think the uh, the, the mili- U.S. military is really too keen on developing another layer of bureaucracy. Uh, so, so uh, even though President Trump seems to uh, be enthusiastic about that idea. Uh, his own military really hasn't uh, come on board with that. And, and we were just talking about a space core. I think what, what some of um, uh, supporters of this concept uh, even want uh, is more, which is a, a space department or, or a space force, as President Trump mentioned. Uh, so it would be something akin to the Air Force or the Army or the Navy. Um, but there's still not a lot of support for that. And, and I think it's, it's still not clear, um, you know, what its role would be. Obviously, 
uh, this particular facility is, is, is the beginnings of an architecture to figure out um, not only how, um, how to respond uh, to a po- possible attack, um, but, but what else? Is it, is it just a matter of tracking uh, potential threats, uh, defending against potential threats, or actually fighting a war in, in space? Would you call this National Space Defense Center something of a precursor or a test of a larger mm-hmm. branch of the military focused on space? Yes, it could could well be. I mean, you could be seeing the birth of something much, much larger. I think that there are uh, people within uh, congressmen and, and senators uh, that support the idea of, of, as I mentioned earlier, uh, turning this into some sort of a uh, of an agency or a full fledged department. Uh, so, uh, and, and maybe something uh, as soon as uh, the next five, uh, five or ten years or earlier. Uh, it just depends. It depends on whether the idea catches on within the military. It's thus far, it, it hasn't caught fire, uh, hasn't caught fire too much within Congress. But uh, with uh, President uh, Trump's comments uh, yesterday about a space force, I think you're going to be seeing more more news about that. It's interesting. After the Colorado Springs Gazette published an article about the National Space Defense Center, including an interview with its director, uh, the Air Force ordered a temporary public relations freeze. Right. Why do you right. think? Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think there's just a, I mean, it's just some miscommunication going on here. I think you know you you have uh, a uh, a facility there that is is still you know just coming out of the experimental phase. It's not clear how how you're going to fund that uh, facility, uh, whether it's going to remain a, a small facility of uh, I believe I saw a staffing of about uh, 200 people. Yeah. Uh, where are those people going to come from? Um, I think there's a lot of unknowns about the future of this facility, and and so I think until uh, there is more meat on on this um, on this idea, uh, the military feels more comfortable uh, being a little more quiet about it. That is Marco Caceres. He's a senior space analyst with the Teal Group in Washington D.C., and we talked about the National Space Defense Center in Colorado Springs, which has begun round-the-clock operations. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Breaking into the metro housing market is as tough as ever. We asked for your experiences so we could share them. First up, military veterans. They have access to one of the best home loan products available, little or no down payment, and the best interest rates. But it's not used as much as it could be, in part because some real estate agents view the offers as weak. CPR business reporter Ben Marcus has more. In many ways, Aaron Ivey's search for a home in Metro Denver is no different than anyone else's. I would say we've seen 40 to 50 within eight months. Last weekend, we looked at eight homes together in total, and we put in five offers. He moved here from Hawaii, expecting a cheaper, easier housing market to break into. But he and his wife, Brianna Fetters, have been surprised just how crazy the search can be in Denver. As soon as we close on a house, we get our weekends back, which will be so great. We actually get to go to the mountains or go hang out with our friends. But now all of our time is spent looking at homes. It's taking extra long for them, at least in part because they're using a VA loan, a special low-cost mortgage available to veterans. Ivy spent nine years in the Navy. 
The problem in Denver is a decent home can garner a dozen offers or more, and some seller's agents will put the VA loan offer near the bottom of the pile because they believe the buyer is less qualified since there's little or no money down, or that the VA bureaucracy is too onerous. Ivy got really close to one house. We were at a pizza spot grabbing a (laughs) beer and some pizza, and we knew we were going to get it. We were checking out the area, and then our realtor calls us and he says that, a cash offer came in an hour before the deadline. So that was pretty heartbreaking. Cash offers don't have as many restrictions as a VA loan. And sometimes sellers' agents will encourage a buyer to not even put in a VA loan offer because they think it won't qualify. Anthony Rayal is a longtime real estate agent in the Denver area. It happens a lot, and uh, it's been a source of frustration for me for many, many years. Rayal isn't Ivy's agent. But when he does represent VA buyers, he'll try to explain to other agents that these loans are really no different than a conventional loan these days. Just like these vets have gone to battle for us, you kind of have to put on your your boots and strap them on and say, look, I'm going to go fight for you. And people, the marketplace may view you and, and your VA loan and you as a buyer as something less than competitive. I don't feel that way, and I'm going to advocate for you. In his 14 years as an agent, he's never had a VA loan buyer back out of a deal at the last minute. He says even cash offers will weasel out of closing sometimes. 5% of all the mortgages over the last few years in the metro area are made with VA loans. But there are more veterans than that living in the Denver area. Matthew Schultz is a mortgage broker and a Navy veteran. He says that's probably because of the bias against VA loan offers. Yeah, I really don't think there should be. Uh, it, it, first of all, we're, we're dealing with, with veterans. I mean, if there's somebody who really is out there deserving, I mean, no greater folk than, than our military folk. He says the bad rap that VA loans get is probably rooted in past experiences. For one thing, appraisals used to take longer. Sure. And I mean, 20 years ago, things were different. There were different appraisal standards. Um, VA has lightened those standards as well. He says it doesn't take any longer now to get a VA loan appraisal than for any other kind of home mortgage. Despite the perception, Navy veteran Aaron Ivey is finally close to closing on a home. And he is thankful for the VA loan program. But... I kind of wish there was some maybe a different program that would allow buyers to set up with... VA sellers, and then that would help that process as well, especially in a market like we have here in Denver. His wife, Brianna Fetter, says there's lots of programs to help veterans find work. There should be some to help them find a home. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. This is one of several stories listeners shared with CPR News. To comment or to share your own, email business at CPR.org. Ski season isn't what it used to be because snowfall isn't what it used to be. So Steamboat Springs is trying to reinvent itself. Sonia Macy's is a member of the city council there. She spoke with Andrea Dukakis about the lack of snow, less than half what it was two years ago. And that signaled a need for change. We're trying to keep up with providing activities that are non-snow related or make sure that the experience of the visitor is more than just dependent on the quality of the snow and how much snow we have. So if we have a low snow year, we're not negatively impacted to a degree that we can't recover from financially. When did folks realize something new was needed to deal with the declining snowfall? Well, probably since about 
2009, 2010, and that's in earnest. I think there have always been efforts to bring special events throughout the summer, but one of the most significant efforts is Bike Town USA. So we actually began to make a commitment to building out biking trails to attract all levels of mountain bikers and others. So we now have a 10-year commitment to funding bike trails to bring people in the summer. Some mountain communities have been more successful than others. I think Telluride was the first to show summer tourism revenue that was equal to or greater than winter tourism revenue as yeah. far as sales tax dollars. And how does yours compare? I mean, you have summer visits, you have winter visits. Are the summer visits keeping up with the winter visits? We have not reached that threshold yet. One of the things that is um, different for us is the nature of the summer tourists versus the winter tourists. What we see is the winter tourist typically is here and staying in paid lodging and, and then using our shuttles, our taxis, et cetera, to get around. So when you look at the summer tourists, we have a lot of tourists who come from the Front Range area and oftentimes are staying with friends or renting through Airbnb and BRBO. So the summer tourism revenue hasn't quite reached winter tourism revenue, but we are getting to a point where um, our concentration of tourism in the summer is becoming pretty dramatic. And some of the residents are asking us to slow down with special events that bring people here just due to congestion and some other issues. In terms of revenues in general, how much have they declined along with the decline in snowfall? Well, interestingly, actually, we haven't seen them decline. This December, for example, our sales tax revenue was up 1.9% over last December's. So the snowfall has not necessarily been an issue for our sales tax revenue. The sectors that performed best were marijuana and alcohol. Mm, Great. (laughs) So I'm not sure that that's exactly what we want to see uh, the higher sales tax numbers in, but um, that is what happened this December. Could it be that people are still hoping there'll be snow, so they're coming anyway, and that could change in the future? Yes, people are still coming here. One of the things that we pride ourselves in being is a uh, real town that just happens to have a ski area. The people who have committed to their reservations came anyway. Um, I did hear from the ski area that there were more cancellations this year than in past years. So you know, some folks are just not not interested if there isn't as much snow as they would like. And you mentioned places like Telluride and other ski resorts uh, trying to adapt to this change. Do you think they're doing a better job of planning than steamboats done? That's a tough one to measure because if you look at the sheer numbers as far as sales tax revenue and what's being generated by activities in other mountain towns, uh, it does seem that we are not quite in the same position. However, when you look at the number of visitors that we're getting, I mean, we tend to be pretty close. Perhaps their visitors are staying in paid lodging longer and paying more taxes there or, you know, dining out in restaurants more and paying more taxes there or so on. Um, so I think when we work with these mountain communities, we try to learn from one another as to what works and what doesn't. Some other mountain communities have made it a focus for longer to get those summer tourists there and diversify their economies. I think we might just be a little later to the party, which is why we haven't quite caught up. Are you doing anything to try to make Steamboat less of a resort town and more of a place where people decide to live year-round? One of the things that we have said is that when we develop amenities, when we do things that make Steamboat Springs a great place to live, visitors come. So, 
We do try very much to retain the rural character of the town. We are working hard to see that people who want to live here year-round can have affordable housing. Uh, we've partnered with our Yampa Valley Housing Authority to recently implement some uh, seasonal and then also transitional housing. So when people are coming here and you know getting into rentals and moving to the community, they're able to stay and, and live for a while as they figure out where they want to be long-term. But then the other piece is we've invested in our downtown. So we've really revitalized the area along the Yampa River using that natural resource as a feature and a draw. We've created some uh, more walkable, pedestrian-friendly streets, some nice night lighting. It's just a much better feel downtown than it was in the past. Back in the 70s, Steamboat went from a property tax-based system to a sales tax-based system. And I imagine the town thought then that there would always be visitors spending money there. I wonder if your approach to taxes makes less sense now. And that's a question that our community is grappling with right now. When we gave up the property tax for the sales tax, the idea was to tax the visitor who's coming here as opposed to the resident. Now, in the 70s, that was probably a working model when our town was, I want to say, 1,200 year-round residents. Now that we're up to 12,000 year-round residents, you know, the question is, who's actually paying that sales tax? And what we're seeing is that the sales tax is actually more paid by the resident. So there's been a lot of discussion in recent months to whether or not our revenue model is still sustainable. And interestingly, I was on the city council from 2011 to 2015. And when I first ran for city council in 2011, people in our community who had been here a long time, one of the things that they said to me throughout my campaign was, don't even think about implementing a property tax. Now I've come back to the city council and I've had those same people coming up to me saying, you know, we really need a property tax. It's just time. So you mentioned that Perhaps Steamboat's a little late to the party here. It does have things like hybrid buses, solar panels on some buildings. But is that more just happenstance or is it part of a definitive strategy? What I would say is Steamboat Springs is not like some of the mountain communities who have set particular targets for whether it's renewable energy sourcing or you know greenhouse gas emission reductions. What we have done is commissioned a greenhouse gas study along with the county. And that's Route County. Yes. In looking at that greenhouse gas study, what we saw was, not surprisingly, that construction, buildings, industrial, commercial, and residential were 57% of our emissions, followed by transportation and municipal solid waste. So when you look at the efforts we've been taking as a community... Uh, We've been doing things that target those areas where we see the most impact. I understand that some officials in town are hesitant to even acknowledge climate change. I wonder what kind of challenges that poses to making these changes. That is a challenge. I have not openly heard anybody say that climate change does not exist. There is a hesitance to talk about climate change as something that we need to focus all of our energy around. There's a lot of emphasis being placed on how do we create a sustainable revenue model right now. So, you know, when we talk about those issues, um, for some, climate change can kind of be a big unknown. You know, how I can't see it. How do I know? <laughs> so, you know, we don't have deniers, but we do have folks who I think just have priorities that lie elsewhere and perhaps don't see uh, this as a top priority for the municipality. 
Is that because steamboats in Route County, which has traditionally produced other forms of energy, not necessarily renewables? You know, when it was happening that coal was transitioning to be less of a provider of jobs, that was a little scary for our community. We didn't know what was going to happen. People, I think, were fearful of the economic impact of jobs. What are people going to do? It does seem as we've moved beyond that. It seems as though people have sort of accepted the fact that this is the way that we are transitioning as a nation. And it's just a change that we are adapting to. Do you have a picture in your mind of what Steamboat Springs is going to look like 20 years from now uh, with less snow and the changing climate? Well, the truth of it is, I don't know that we can say within a 20-year time frame we're going to be experiencing a complete lack of snow. I mean, I think it's more likely that we are talking about unusual weather patterns. So, you know, the snow might be coming early or late or not at all. What we may see is with low snowpack, we have low flows in the Yampa River. From an economic standpoint, of course, the Yampa River is a provider of recreational resource opportunities. So as we think about the future and we think about the impact of snow, we also need to think about the impact to water because water is just the basis for a lot of our summer activity and obviously and an important natural resource for us to steward. Sonia, thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, no problem. Sonia Macy's is on the Steamboat Springs City Council. She spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis about how her town is trying to reinvent itself in the face of declining snowfall. Have you ever been to an art museum and thought, that would look great in my living room? Well, the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver has a new lending library, not of books, but art. They call it the Octopus Initiative. You borrow artwork for up to a year for free. MCA commissioned Denver artists to create these loaners. The library opens today, and Adam Lerner directs the MCA. He's here in the studio. Welcome to the program. Thanks. I'm thrilled to be here. Why the name Octopus Initiative, first off? Oh, because it's about putting art in the hands of many. I see. Okay. And an octopus has many arms, if many not arms. hands. Oh, right. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. That's okay. Uh, how did you land on the concept of an art library? Has this been ha- happening elsewhere? Um, you know, there is a, there are some campuses around the United States that actually uh, lend to students. But we really came to the idea from a different perspective. What happened was... Um, we, th- we, we looked at what's happening in Denver, and we saw there's you know, incredible prosperity, but a lot of artists in the city feel really disconnected from that. They feel like they're not a part of the prosperity of the city. Many of them are being kicked out of their studios and priced out of, um, of the, the housing market. A lot of displacement for artists. Yeah, exactly. And so we said, what would artists need most? Well, obviously, what artists need most is for people to buy their art. Yeah, commissions, right? Exactly. And so... We said, okay, well, we don't, we, as a contemporary museum, um, we should care for these artists, but we don't have a permanent collection. So what if we were to buy their art and then let's give it away to our visitors? And um, that's how the idea emerged. I didn't know this about the MCA. You don't have your own permanent collection. So it's not that you could go out and just spend millions of dollars on art that you kept for yourself and to be displayed in your own galleries. But you thought we could do this and display them in people's homes, perhaps. Exactly. Okay. And you commissioned these works. So these are original pieces that didn't exist maybe a year ago. 
Exactly. These are all works that artists made specifically for us. Okay. Uh, Largely paintings, I understand, collages and drawings. Yes, they're all flat works, things that you could hang on your wall. Okay, the museum currently has about 150 pieces. More works will be added later this year. And the goal is to have like 500 that you'll buy from a variety of local artists, including Molly Bounds, Derek Velasquez, pardon me, Laura Schill... What kinds of pieces did you want them to create? You know, we wanted the artists to make the work that they make. We wanted to make them to be themselves. And I really feel like if the artists are doing the best work, the kind of work that we would display on the walls of the museum... Well, you know what, though? That's exactly the art that we'd like our visitors to take home. Okay, so you gave them a lot of flexibility, in other words. People will have to register with the MCA to use the library... Uh, Will there be an art librarian? Yes, there actually is. Um, We have uh, an octopus um, caretaker. Okay. (laughs) And um, and, and she'll be there um, at the library. But the fact is that anybody can just go online um, at octopusinitiative.org. It's uh, on their phone and they could look at the art and they could favorite the works that they like. And there's a lottery system, and so not everyone will be able to take a piece of artwork home. Yeah, we imagine that um, there'll be at least at the beginning, more demand uh, for these works than we have inventory. And so um, once a month, um, we will have a lottery to see who gets to take home the works. And then, um, you know, as we add more and more works to the inventory, we hopefully that starts to even out a little bit. What happens if a painting, for instance, gets damaged? Or, I don't know, someone doesn't return a work at the end of the year, kind of like a a late book. Sure. You know what? Um... Of course, people always ask that, and we know that's a risk you have to take. But, you know, museums can be such standoffish places because they're so afraid of any damage happening. Uh But we thought that, you know what, we'd rather be completely democratic and open to our visitors and let them, you know, rise to the occasion and check out the work and take it home with them with the risk that maybe there'll be some damage. Are they insured? Of course they're insured. Of course they're insured. I don't I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, finer are. points of this. How did the artists feel about this? Oh, well, you know, the artists in Denver, I really feel like appreciate so much what you do for them. And here we are, you know, sp- you know, 7 to 10 artists a year are now getting this major commission to be able to produce works. That makes a big difference in an artist's life. We're also not just paying for the art, but we're also paying for their studio space and their materials oh for, my the, for the year. So it's a big deal. If I really like a piece of art I've had in my home for the year, yeah. can I buy it? I hope that what you'll do is you'll go to the artist's gallery or to the artist's website and buy the work from the artist themselves. We want to keep the art in the inventory for somebody else to check out. Okay. So the idea is to create longer-term relationships between the public and the artists working in the metro area. Exactly. I really want the people of Denver to develop a stronger connection to the artists who are making their city interesting. Are you going to give recommendations to people who take art into their homes about, like, how to care for it or, um, you know, tell your toddler not to have spaghetti near it or what? Sure. There's there's a little um, a list of uh, how to hang the work. And, you know, we have a little bit of a set of instructions that come with each each work. OK. Have you been getting calls from other museums about this? And uh, might you see this replicated elsewhere? Yeah, we've already had interest from uh, another large museum that wants to take this initiative um, and license it from us. And so we're working with them. We're pretty deep into conversations with them. 
I wonder if this will turn you on to new artists, perhaps in Metro Denver as well. Oh, yeah. You know, the process for selecting artists is for us to take nominations from our peers. And we try to get nominations from people who might not be in the same circles that we are. And then we choose from those nominations. So we are getting to meet new artists and learn about new artists from this process. Are you going to take a piece home, do you think, Adam Lurt? Have you ever had a, a museum piece in your home? I <laughs> you know, Is that I, the perk of being the director? Yeah, you don't get to check out the work uh-huh. if you're the director. But I, um, I, I personally am at the point where I love many of these artists. And actually, many of the artists who are displaying, I actually would love to have their works in my house. Well, that's something that is possible for folks with this idea. Thanks for being with us, MCA Denver director Adam Lerner on the museum's new art library, which lets you check out a painting up to a year for free. Thanks for checking us out. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.